At times, one should proceed with caution and not set the house on fire. But we also have to realize that a lot of rooms in that house are burning right now. I am a believer in dramatic change, and I think that elected DAs now have the opportunity to do some pretty powerful things pretty quickly. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Our focus today is the quite remarkable fact, I think, that the movement to elect reform-minded prosecutors has now been around long enough and it has scored uh, enough victories that it has its very own uh, professional and advocacy association, and that is Fair and Just Prosecution. It brings together newly elected, like-minded prosecutors to share resources and support policies designed to decrease the impact of the criminal justice system. Uh, And the idea is to deploy those policies from what is arguably the most powerful perch in that system, local prosecutors' offices. So to talk about that work and to get her take on the current state of the movement to elect more 21st century prosecutors, I'm very happy to be joined in studio today by the executive director of Fair and Just Prosecution, Miriam Krinsky. Miriam, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you for the attention to these issues. And just before we get started, I should say that we here at the center are partners to your work somewhat. We offer you administrative uh, administrative support and do some research, though I am not myself involved in that work. We're here to talk about the next generation of prosecutors, but you were a, a longtime prosecutor yourself from what we could call a, a, a previous generation. You were a federal prosecutor for 15 years, I believe. Well, what did you learn in that role over those years, and how did that lead to your decision to found a group like Fair and Just Prosecution? So um, so I was a prosecutor. I, I prosecuted in the 80s and 90s. It was a period of time where we saw a ramp up of penalties, especially in the federal system, the so-called tough on crime mentality that started to permeate prosecutors' offices and unfortunately communities as well. Um, what I saw were the advent of the sentencing guidelines, a response to how things were being depicted as crack cocaine started to hit the streets. I saw more and more young people, especially young boys of color, entering the justice system. Uh, And really, families destroyed, communities decimated, and intergenerational patterns where it wasn't simply the damage that was being done to the individual, but it was the ripple effect, you know, almost the pebble in, in the stream effect on that individual's children often, siblings, um, and other members of the community that at the end of the day, with all of that, just wasn't making communities any safer. So it left me with the view that we needed to do things better, that it was something that was sort of that definition of insanity. We're doing the same thing over and over again and presuming that somehow we were going to end up in a different or better place um, was just wrong. So when I left, I left to work with young people because I felt that we had missed windows of opportunity where we could make a difference in people's lives. And that time was something that I wanted to better engage in rather than continuing to fuel an incarcerative process that was, was losing people into a dark tunnel. I mean, what exactly were you told as, a, as an incoming prosecutor? What were you told your job was? I, 
actually felt um, and continued to feel very positively about my old office. I, I do think that we were told that our job and our obligation was to further the interests of justice and to try to do right by our community. I think the problem was part of the system and the set of laws that we were constrained by. And certainly after 9-11, because I stayed through just after 9-11, um, things did start to change in terms of the attitude of what federal prosecutors should do and focus on. And it was at that moment that it became crystal clear that it was hard to keep doing what I was doing. But when you say that as an incoming prosecutor, you were told that your uh, your goal was to seek justice. I mean, it's a sort of slogan, if I can say that, of, mm-hmm. your, of your own foundation, of your own association, that the job of the prosecutor is not to seek convictions, per se. It's, it's to seek justice. Uh, but justice, of course, is in the eye of the beholder sure. somewhat. Do, do you have the sense that how, pro- let's just focus on prosecutors, how prosecutors think about what justice is has evolved from the time you started as a prosecutor to now? Absolutely. Um, And I think that there's now a growing understanding that prosecutors need to own more and not be reactive and not be comfortable with a criminal justice system that presumes that incarceration is the right way to attend to things such as mental illness or manifestations of poverty or substance use disorder. So I think finding a conceptualization of justice that says to prosecutors, you need to be part of building the trust of your community. You need to be part of recognizing that people deserve second chances. And you need to advocate for a smaller footprint of the justice system so that we don't start to create a status quo that is too embedded in self-perpetuating itself. So it sounds like a little bit you're you're urging prosecutors to make better use of their discretion. Um, and this word has come up a lot in this series on prosecutor power, the what some people view as the unfettered discretion exercised by prosecutors. And there are those who think, hey, maybe we need to, to put some guardrails on those discretions and regulate the power of prosecutors. And then there's a competing progressive school of thought that says, no, in fact, we just need to urge prosecutors to be using that discretion better. I'm wondering where you and Fair and Just Prosecution come down on that kind of big picture question. So so interestingly, I don't look at those views that you articulated as opposite sides of the coin. No, they're not necessarily. Or even really in tension with each other. So I do think guardrails are needed. I may not agree with John Pfaff that we need guidelines for prosecutors. And part of that is I lived through the nightmare of sentencing guidelines and realized that sometimes guardrails um, strip a process of the humanity of the individual and constrain people to a point where they can know it's, it's about addition and mechanics rather than the person. So I do think guardrails are needed. I think more transparency is needed so that prosecution is no longer a black box that the community has no ability to know or understand or even be aware of and hold people's feet to the fire. So we're releasing more data, for example, on who your office is charging and how decisions are being made. And Absolutely. And being transparent in policy choices that you're making. You know, this is where our priorities are. This is where we're looking to move. This is where we're no longer going to use the clout of the justice system to respond. No prosecutor has resources to prosecute everything. So inherently, they do control the front door and they make choices. 
And then could, could we just start going through, I mean, you have this national perspective, obviously, in the, in the role that you have of what different prosecutors' offices are, how, how they're addressing different challenges. So if we could just look at some of the, the series of challenges that offices deal with and what are some of the different ways they can take it on. Um, another big theme of this series has been the issue of violence and offenses involving violence and that if we're really going to address this era of mass incarceration, we're going to have to take a new approach both to offenses involving violence and the people who are charged with them. So what can you offer, you know, a, a new reform-minded prosecutor who's out there are some possibly successful ways of taking an, a new approach to the, to, to the issue of violence? Right. Well, I, I think the first thing that we try to offer is the view that this so-called violent-nonviolent dichotomy is an unfortunate and overly simplistic and illusory one. Is an individual who is in the midst of a mental health crisis and assaults somebody a violent offender? Is a young person who lives in a community where they simply don't trust the police, and there may be very good reasons for that, and the neighborhood is one such that for them to feel safe, they need to carry a gun or some other weapon because otherwise they really are fearful for their security. Is that an individual that we should give up on or deem a so-called violent offender? And are all of those individuals examples of situations where long terms of incarceration make anything better off? If we're not dealing with the underlying problem, we're not making things better. So I do think examples that we've seen that we try to bring to the group of ways to deal with those underlying problems, of ways to try to work with the individuals who are most at risk and put them on a different pathway. And I think that there are models out there that can be replicated. So we're trying to bring that thinking to this group of DAs and to encourage them. And and I did appreciate John talking about this on your podcast series that I would encourage folks to listen to. That's John Pfaff, we're saying. Correct. Um, So I appreciated the fact that, you know, John observed many of our jails are filled with these individuals, these so-called violent offenders, and that for those who think about criminal justice reform, it's easy to pick off the low-hanging fruit and say, I'm going to look at low-level nonviolent offenses and we're going to divert those. But often we have the best opportunity to bring about change for the individuals that are now, many of them, serving long periods of incarceration that don't need to be there anymore and that eventually are going to come back to our community And they're going to be at high risk of recidivism. They're going to be no better off and, in fact, in many instances, more destabilized and at greater safety risk to our community than when we put them into custody in the first instance. Those are the kinds of examples, I think, of where opportunities abound and where we really can and should be changing lives for the better. And then how about the the issue that is uh, in in the news a lot these days, in part because of the members of your network, uh, which is conviction integrity, uh, meaning essentially prosecutors' offices, you know, going back in time and looking at sentences and and, and realizing, hey, this is this is somebody who was most likely wrongfully convicted, uh, whether it was because of you know dubious testimony from a police officer or or dubious prosecution practices around you know discovery laws uh, about the release of evidence and the like. Um, are there some best practices emerging out there for for how we deal with conviction integrity and and maintaining trust in justice? Right. right. So you know, I think the first best practice is just do it. 
And you asked me earlier, Matt, sort of what what is the definition of justice? And I think one thing we have to be willing to embrace is the notion that justice doesn't have an end point, that just because a case has reached the point of conviction, a prosecutor's duty to ensure that justice was done doesn't artificially end. So I think the first thing we've done is tried to encourage members of our group, individuals, prosecutors we work with, to make sure that their office has some process in place to give those sorts of convictions a fresh scrub when there are reasons for concern. Um, Most of the DAs we worked with did not have any process like that in place in their offices um, when we first started engaging and working with them. And now the vast majority do. So something exists where there was nothing before, and that's huge. I think the second thing that we've been encouraging them is to create it in a way where it has a direct line to the DA, to the very top, where there's sufficient independence, where the lens isn't limited to only cases where people are still in custody or where the appellate process has run its course or even you know limited to only felonies. That if we really believe in ensuring that justice has been done, any conviction should be entitled to second looks when there's reason for concern. And I think the final area that we're interestingly seeing some appetite um, in a wonderfully exciting way among DAs that we work with for new pushing the envelope innovation is giving extreme past sentences a second look. Um, Just as we should look backward and correct convictions that lacked integrity, If somebody's serving a sentence, perhaps in a three-strikes sentence or a life sentence, for conduct that today we would never impose that sentence for, or if somebody's serving a sentence and they've been in for decades and they no longer pose a risk to the community and they're there biding their time and we're paying for them to be there um, biding their time and they can safely be returned to the community, we need some process in place to be able to give those sorts of situations a second look as well. And, and then an issue that I think motivates a lot of reformers and, and activists is, is the endemic racial disparities of the criminal justice system. And of course, that, that question really takes in the system writ large. But I'm sure this is something your group has done a lot of thinking about. Are, are there some proven or, again, emerging strategies that prosecutors can use to, to try to attack that, that problem? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, I think as, as a starting point, prosecutors need to recognize that this is a problem to and to call it out, to be willing to have the conversations. To name it. To yeah. name it. And until we name it, we're not going to address it. And so we've seen prosecutors like Tori Salazar in San Joaquin um, start to engage in a conversation with her community where she's gone out and essentially said, we are responsible for this shameful history in our country of racial inequities. And just as some law enforcement leaders have started to apologize for past shameful racist history in our country, prosecutors need to own and apologize for that. Offices need to track it um, and to be aware of instances and, and certain offenses and patterns that they otherwise are blind to if they're not tracking that kind of data. The metrics matter. The metrics matter. And I think prosecutors also need to ensure that their offices 
are reflective of the rich diversity of our community. You know, the racial diversity of our community, the socioeconomic diversity of our community. The life experiences. Exactly, and including looking for ways to include in their offices individuals who have lived experience in the justice system and ensuring that individuals in their office are kept proximate to those voices. No one should ever, as a new prosecutor, go in and advocate for somebody's placement in a prison or jail unless they've walked those hallways and seen what those facilities are like. And then your organization is is made up of the uh, elected heads of of these prosecutors' offices. These are the the, the faces of the offices, uh, but then they're not the ones generally who are in the courtrooms prosecuting the cases and making those decisions. Those are very often young, incoming assistant district attorneys, possibly in their first job out of law school. So, how much support are you able to give to? your members at the head of these organizations to ensure that the kind of change you want to see is making its way all all the way down. If indeed change even starts from the top, maybe it needs to bubble up from the bottom. I I think it needs to be both and everything in between. I mean, often change, you know, dies at middle management level. So, you know, I, I think there needs to be change from the top down. The leader sets the tone. But I think we also need change to happen from the bottom up. We need a new generation of passionate law students who believe in criminal justice reform and recognize that the biggest difference they can make as criminal justice reformers is to go and work in a prosecutor's office and to bring that hopefully starry-eyed idealism to the table and to not have that thinking extinguished by a culture within an office that can at times be quicksand that draws people back to the status quo. So I think we need to be finding a different new generation of individuals to go into prosecutors' offices. We need metrics that judge them differently, that don't look to evaluate their performance based on how many trials they've had, how many people they've indicted, what their conviction rate is, but looks at a new set of measurements around how often are you in the community? How respected do people feel by you, defendants as well as witnesses and victims? Um, What are you doing to prevent and divert people from the justice system? Um, So different ways to measure them, different ways to train them, And then just a different culture in the offices. And I think we're seeing those things happening in a field and a profession that I think is a wonderful one, but had started to move sort of in the wrong direction. And I think we're now at an exciting moment where it's finding a new equilibrium. Do you think those starry-eyed idealists coming out of law school, are are they wanting to, to be prosecutors? I mean, given the historical... reputation of prosecutors? I would imagine finding those people sometimes is a bit of a challenge. It's changing. I think it has been. And we, FJP, just put in place last year a summer fellows program where we've been looking for those law students. I think the first summer we went out to a couple of, or, or the first year we went out looking for summer fellows at a couple of law schools, there was some skepticism. I think now we're seeing the numbers growing as people have role models that think differently, and also look differently. I mean, the old paradigms where 95% of elected prosecutors were white males 
is not today's reality. We work with elected leaders who are majority women and majority elected DAs of color. That's remarkably different. And I think we're seeing an excitement, not simply among communities and voters that are putting these new leaders in place, but it's also seeping into law schools. And then when you talk about, you know, pro, you know a 21st century prosecutor taking over an office and, and needing to set a, a, a new tone, um, obviously there's kind of a range of approaches to how aggressive one is in setting that new tone. And at, at the end of the day, no matter how progressive you are as a prosecutor, any change you make is going to be slow and, and incremental when we're talking about such a, a big and entrenched system like the criminal justice system. And also, at the end of the day, a prosecutor needs certain institutional relationships in order to do his or her job, whether that's with, you know, the police or, or the court system. So I'm sort of struck by this danger, perhaps, of, of going too quickly in reforms and potentially damaging institutional relationships you need. And I, I just wonder if you've seen a, a range of approaches to, to that problem, when, and if indeed you even think it is a, a problem. Right. Well, you know, I, I think there's value in recognizing and understanding the ecosystem within which you work. But having said that, I think for too long we've seen elected DAs use that as a reason to not move forward on reform or hit reset buttons because they're too worried about, you know, what will the judges think? What will law enforcement think? At times, one should proceed with caution and not set the house on fire But we also have to realize that a lot of rooms in that house are burning right now. So I am a believer in dramatic change. And I think that elected DAs now have the opportunity to do some pretty powerful things pretty quickly. And I also think that they may find that they would be surprised by just how many people out there support that. They have the wind of reform at their back. They were elected by communities that want to see things done differently. And often there are members of law enforcement departments and other parts of the criminal justice ecosystem or the health ecosystem or the public, you know, mental health systems within which they work who have been dying to see DAs stand up on some of these issues and do things differently. There are a lot of cops who don't want to be arresting people for smoking marijuana on the street or driving with suspended licenses or acting out in the midst of a mental health crisis. That's not why they became law enforcement officers. There are a lot of public health officials who don't believe that we should be criminalizing opioid addiction or substance use disorder, and that public health has a lot more to offer in solving those problems than the criminal justice system. No, I, I would say the that appetite, the revelation of that appetite has been surprising um, just in the last couple of years. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't anyone to ask you about was um, as someone who's been part of this system and working to improve it for so long, how do you account for what has been this dramatic change of sorts in the last couple of years with this kind of wave of elections of progressive-minded prosecutors and what seems like a sudden um, surge in, in scrutiny of prosecutors and the sudden revelation of how much power they actually wield uh, within the system? Has it surprised you how, how quickly this movement has snowballed? Um, it, it hasn't surprised me, but I found it heartening. Um, but... I maybe wouldn't have suspected when I left prosecution in the early 2000s that we would make our way here. 
I think it's the result of, A, the fact that voters are tired of spending money on incarcerating people, billions of dollars that we could use much more wisely in other ways. I think now it's also hard to find a family that hasn't been impacted by the criminal justice system. Our justice system has gotten so large that it's hard to find communities that haven't seen the damage that it can do. So I think there's more wisdom. I think that there's more frustration. I think there's been more impact of the damaging effect of the justice system. And I think there are now more models in other parts of the world that have done things differently and seen crime drop. And there's been more science around juvenile and adolescent brains and other areas that we can look to and say, we now know what we do hasn't been the best response or the right response. And as the director of a professional association for progressive prosecutors, does it concern you at all that there's so much pent-up expectation now for what these uh, newly elected prosecutors are going to be able to do, that there's a danger perhaps of people expecting almost change, uh, almost expecting too much and change to happen too quickly? And it's not a very galvanizing message, I suppose, but whether there needs to be some kind of (laughs) outreach on the fact that, hey, changing systems takes time. I think that is a valid concern. You know, the the expectations for this new generation of leaders is very high. And change doesn't happen overnight. What took decades to build isn't going to be unraveled um, in a matter of a year or two. On the other hand, I like the fact that there are high expectations. I like the fact that the group that we work with has a fire burning beneath their feet. I think that it's going to be a counterweight to some of that slow-as-molasses tendency of bureaucracies to respond. So I think it's a positive thing that expectations are high and that the voter mandate has been pretty loudly articulated. And I hope that volume stays um, at full throttle because I think it's going to encourage them to see that that wind I referred to previously is at their backs that people do want to see things change and change quickly. And it gives that loud, ever-present message that I alluded to earlier that lives are impacted every single day they keep doing what their offices and systems have done. So perhaps realistic expectations are useful, but patience, you know, isn't always the right response when systems have not necessarily done right by individuals up until now. Well, Miriam, I, I want to congratulate you first on, on the success of Fair and Just Prosecution and, uh, and some of the remarkable work of, of your members. And, and then, of course, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, and thank you for the interest. So I've been speaking with uh, Miriam Krinsky. Miriam is the Executive Director of Fair and Just Prosecution. To find out more about her work and um, all the previous episodes in our series on the power of prosecutors, some of which you've heard referenced in our conversation, um, you can find out more by visiting our website. That's at courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. Technical support today from the unflappable Bill Harkins. Samiha Mia is our director of design. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com, and our show's founder is Rob Wolf. 
This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.